Good day, and welcome to the University of Minnesota Extension podcast, University of Minnesota CropCast. I'm your host, Dave Nikolai, with the University of Minnesota Extension. I'm a crops educator located here in Minnesota. My co-host is Dr. Seth Nave, University of Minnesota Extension soybean specialist. And we have a special guest uh, for this particular podcast. We've invited in Dr. Craig Schaefer, a uh, longtime University of Minnesota forage specialist, um, alfalfa uh, content specialist, uh, etc. And I think we're going to get right into it, Seth, and talk to Craig a little bit about uh, a couple of the different things in here. But where I think we're going to start out and visit with Craig a little bit in terms of his own personal background, where he came from, grew up, went to school, and uh, when you arrived here at the University of Minnesota. So, Craig, take it away. Yeah, thanks, Dave, Seth. Um, yeah, let's go back in history. And keep in mind, I've been here for a lot of years, so I may not remember all the details. Uh, but obviously, all of us have some significant events in our lives that we like to talk about. I came here in July of 1977, um, and that seems like only yesterday. I remember it was hot, and we never had any air conditioning in the building at the time, so I couldn't understand what that was all about, uh, but it was is interesting. Uh, before that, I, I grew up in uh, Pennsylvania near Middletown, which is between uh, Harrisburg and Hershey, small farm there. Um, went to undergraduate school at Delaware Valley College near Philadelphia and then graduate school at University of Maryland. When I was in graduate school, I worked on um, a couple different interesting topics. One of them was the use, use of sewage sludge on crop growth, and the other one was using hay preservatives um, on, on hay, how to bale at lower moisture using preservatives. Um, so um, with that, uh, after that time, I came here, and um, as, I, as I mentioned, came here in uh, 1977, um, and um, if I, I think I can mention my salary, can't I? Sure, I started, of course. I started at $19,500, you know, uh, at the time. And, you know, compared to graduate school salaries, uh, I thought that was really pretty good. Um, and it obviously has increased over time. And, uh, but that was my starting point. And um, I really have to mention also some colleagues that really influenced me, really, from the first day I was here. Um, Arnie Hoven was a grass breeder. Gordon Martin was a USDA ARS um, scientist, forage researcher. Don Barnes was an alfalfa breeder, geneticist. Uh, Neil Martin was a forage extension specialist. So I had um, just... Um, mention those names, but, you know, there are many other people. Laddie Elling, who I think, Dave, you know, you've had some stories about. Uh, he's famous for seed production up, up in uh, Rosso, Minnesota. Um, and, uh, of course, I have to mention our old department head, Herb Johnson. So uh, it was a little way of diff different way of operating than we do now. So it was his way or the highway. That's what they said about Herb. <laughs> What was your original appointment? What was your original uh, title and appointment? What what did it look like and uh, compared to today, maybe? Yeah, so um, it was a, a research teaching appointment, 65% research, 35% teaching. And um, I had a couple courses to teach. 
Uh, one of them was a basic forage production course. Another course was advanced forage research techniques. So that was the starting point. And we can talk about teaching maybe at another time, but you know, as the numbers of students uh, in those courses dwindled, uh, I switched and taught introductory agronomy and uh, taught sustainable ag colloquium. I had a course called The Horse in Your Backyard. I had another crop production course. So with teaching, I've kind of gone with the flow and tried to seek out the audiences uh, or shall we say a bigger clientele whenever possible. So we are, we are going to have another session and, and talk to you about teaching. So that was a good, good introduction, but you know, maybe that's a good place to talk of transition back to research. And, and, uh, so give us an idea about some of the first research projects you worked on when you came and what your research, maybe even your lab and, and what some of the first things that you were doing and how, uh, how you, how funding came about and, and some, maybe a little bit more about those colleagues that you worked with at that time. Yeah, um, I first want to say that I came here directly out of graduate school. You know, today, uh, many individuals have a postdoc experience, and I wish I would have had that, but it was, you know, common at the time, going from PhD, getting a job. And I had like five job offers all over different places. And I came to Minnesota because it had actually the best support, and agriculture was really important here. Because you remember, I was on the East Coast, and agriculture important was importance was declining. Minnesota, it was still good. Of course, it's still important here, although forages have dwindled somewhat in importance. So um, when I first came here, um, I um, worked a lot with Neil Martin. He was a forage extension specialist. I traveled throughout the state, from Black Duck to Lamberton to. Uh, Nimrod, all over these obscure places. And we were involved in a lot of pasture renovation or sod seeding at the time, trying to increase the value productivity of, 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 of those pastures. But what we found out was is a lot of growers really didn't want to invest in improving the productivity of their pastures. Uh, however, that formed the basis of research. And I had a lot of interaction with growers at the time. And um, in fact, years later, I was talking to a guy and, you know, kind of reminiscent about my experiences and how much he learned, I learned. And he, he said to me, yeah, you know, when you first came here, I thought you were a little green and I thought the cows were going to eat you if we didn't watch what you were doing out there in the pasture. He tells me that. So it's kind of humorous. Um, but I think as for all of us, we learned a lot on our jobs Get, gain experience, we mature as person, and we're, we're not quite as green as we were when we started. So in your research area, did you emphasize a particular species when you started here? Were you more involved with some of the grass versus the alfalfa? Or how did that work out? Well, it, it has really evolved a lot over time. Um, as I mentioned in my previous, uh, in previous comments, I, I started out doing a lot of sod seeding or pasture. Mm -hmm. renovation work, and I worked a lot with Neil Martin. Um, and, um, you know, suppression of grasses, introducing legumes and grasses. Um, I, um, I really then moved a lot more towards alfalfa, which is the most important forage crop in the state. Well, it is, and it really was then. We had over a million acres. Now we're down to less than a million acres. 
and um, got involved in alfalfa variety trial work with Don Barnes and um, also got involved um, in looking at forage quality of alfalfa. So um, there, there was that shift over time. And I think alfalfa has been kind of the backbone, the research background of, bone of my research program um, throughout, throughout my stay here at Minnesota. Can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the history of the alfalfa variety testing program? I mean, obviously it was going on prior to your arrival here, but I remember looking through some of the artifacts and, uh, you know, the University of Minnesota and, and the Agricultural Experiment Station at that time would, were involved for many, many years. And this was a, 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 a quite an interesting program involvement in, in, if you look back into the history. Oh, yeah. So alfalfa in Minnesota has always been a significant crop. Uh, Dave, maybe you recall grim alfalfa. Not uh, quite. Okay. <laughs> so grim alfalfa was a revolutionary winter-hardy alfalfa variety that was developed out in Carver County. Um, it was really a land race, a selection by a German farmer, Wendelin Grimm. And um, that alfalfa variety, um, because it was winter hardy and persisted here, uh, really allowed um, growers to get a profit from alfalfa. So there was a huge alfalfa industry uh, developed really beginning uh, in the 19, early 1900s, 1920, it really picked up pace. Um, one of the uh, very first alfalfa variety trial publications, I think it was called Farm Trials, that we now put our data in for corn, soybeans, and some alfalfa, um, uh, had a comparison of grim alfalfa with um, other varieties that were grown at the time. Uh, the challenge with Grimm was that it did not have resistance to any diseases, particularly bacterial wilt. And bacterial wilt um, is present in, in, in our environment. And as you grow alfalfa for many years, you'll get a greater incidence of it. So one of the first um, uh, trials that I saw compared to, uh, to Grimm with other varieties that um, were really not adapted to this area. They were more from the Southwest. And, and then a subsequent trial results showed Grimm ver versus Ladakh uh, versus Ranger, which is Ranger was one of the first ones with, which had a bacterial wilt resistance, and then with Vernal. So Vernal would have been developed in the 50s. So Vernal was a big change in alfalfa varieties, and it's still... Around, I think today you can still buy seed of it. So that was the background. Really, foundation was grim, and Minnesota became an alfalfa-producing state. But then we had vernal and other varieties, and over time, many commercial companies developed, and there was a shift from of breeding here, and there was breeding done at the University of Minnesota to private companies, and the private companies uh, have more or less taken over that, that industry. And um, the uh, University of Minnesota and most, uh, most other universities, as well as USDARS, does not de deal with commercial variety development. What was the timing on that uh, shift? When I've, I'm really unfamiliar with alfalfa and breeding and uh, variety development. When when did that big shift happen from universities over to industry? So in the, I think in the 60s and the 70s would have been 
the major the major change pattern. Um, before that time, if you look at variety trial data, most of the varieties were developed at um, universities, you know, agriculture extent, uh, uh, experiment stations. Uh, they would be like uh, Nebraska, for example, um, Wisconsin. So, so, but that shift happened. And I think it's, it's a good thing to happen. You know, that's what universities should be about. Universities should be pioneers in developing this technology and then pass it off to the private industry because they do business much better than we do. Do you think that alfalfa was one of the first um, crops to really move from the public sector to the private sector then? I can't think of anything else that would have maybe preceded it besides some more niche crops or more, you know, sugar beets or something like that. I could imagine that, that some of that got privatized earlier, but it sounds like alfalfa, you know, we, I think we have a pretty good history of knowing corn, um, you know, corn really probably privatized a little bit earlier with hybrid corn. Mm -hmm. And then maybe that was the leader. And then, uh, then alfalfa maybe followed that. And maybe for some of the same logistical challenges around seed production around, um, you know, besides just the commercial aspects to it. So uh, I'm just kind of curious if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah. Well, I think alfalfa was one of the leaders, but I know hybrid corn, um, that program was really developed in the 50s, wasn't it? The 40s and 50s. And if you look at the history of the percentage of the hybrid corn that is grown in Minnesota, United States, you know, really it took off in the 50s. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, that was an interesting, you know, it, we're off the, the alfalfa topic a little bit, but I think probably the universities continued to develop the inbreds and they turned those over to the companies. And then the companies were then making the crosses to sell, you know, with, with the various uh, university produced inbreds. But I, I guess my point is that the, a lot of this just become, comes down to the sheer logistics and who, like you said, who can, who can best handle these uh, things better? You know, a lot of that was back to the Minnesota Crop Improvement, and uh, we recently put together a, a, a poster, uh, uh, Dr. Tom Peters and myself for uh, North Central Weeds, but going back and then looking at the uh, not only experiment station publications, but there was a journal and articles written by Minnesota Crop Improvement and with growers and back in the 30s and Minnesota 13 and so forth. Uh, I wanted to jump over and talk a little bit about one of the things that you got involved with not too soon, not, not too after, quickly, I should say, after you uh, arrived here, uh, was the varietal uh, program in terms of uh, alfalfa and, and testing. Maybe talk a little bit about that. There certainly were challenges with that program, and, and you know, someone was working with it prior to that, you know, coming here. Who, who was that, and then how did that What's happened to that over the years? Yeah, so that program really was initiated, or certainly the individual published on it was Laddie Elling, who I mentioned earlier. Uh, and uh, he did some of the early work. And then Don Barnes, USDA ARS uh, alfalfa breeder, got very much involved. And his program was very diverse. Not only did they do variety testing, but he did some development he developed agate, which was the first variety with Phytophthora root rot resistance. And uh, Don, working with Fred Froschizer, who was a pathologist with USDA ARS, they did extensive trials out at Rosemont for bacteria wilt screening, fusarium wilt screening, Phytophthora root screening of alfalfa varieties. 
So there came a time and point that the variety testing really didn't fit within the responsibilities of a USDA ARS scientist. So beginning in the 80s, and I forget the exact year, I took over that program. And the program originally um, had research sites at all of the research and outreach centers. And I don't know if you've talked with those them before, but Wasika, Lamberton, Morris, Crookston, Grand Rapids, sometimes it's Staples, and Rosemont. Rosemont was always the base center. And um, so it was spread out. And But at that time, there were agronomists at each of those stations who would run those trials. And they would test the latest varieties, these, these agronomists. We here then would compile the data. So the program, though, did change over time because of the funding base. Um, we had inadequate support, or it certainly dwindled over time to do variety testing with the number of entries coming in. And you have to realize in the 70s and 80s, we might have had 100 entries in a trial. And that's a lot to harvest. And we did a lot of manual harvest. We had a harvester where you had to bag the forage and take it and weigh it. We did not have load cells on our equipment at the time. Um, so it took a lot of labor and a lot of cost. So we went to that fee-based system. And the fee-based system was really good for a while. Um, companies recognized that the university was going to provide an unbiased source of information for their growers. So they would enter their experimentals and they would enter their var current varieties. Um, so for the experimentals, they would determine what's going to be released for the varieties that would be directly go to for producers to, to use that information for variety selection. So but there was a fee. So what happened over time is that the number of companies decreased. There was competition among them. And the ones that survived developed their own testing programs. So they developed their own data and they used that in their marketing. And they evaluated their experimentals that, that way. One company has, had the sites in Minnesota. Uh, a couple sites in Minnesota and Wisconsin and Michigan, you know, so they basically figured it was more cost effective to generate their own data. And over time in that program, um, and it um, ceased in the 19, 1920, excuse me, 2020, we had only like eight or nine entries in it and there was not enough to do a comparison. So we discontinued it. And the fees were getting exorbitant and in order to just to, for us to do business with, with that number, so with that number of entries. So that's why we discontinued it. And, um, you know, it's a whole other program. We talk about alfalfa variety selection, but growers still really need to look at uh, data in order to make that decision about what variety to pick. And they ought to look at data, my opinion, from many different companies and even within a company What's available? Two different entries of different dormancy of winter survival or disease resistant. They may cost a lot more, one more than the other. Is it worth it? So um, we, at the end, we did not make recommendations. But 
uh, about varieties, but we certainly gave people uh, op- data to make that decision. How about on the quality side of this? How what what did your lab look like, and uh, how did, had that changed? I know uh, you moved to an NIR, you know, based predictions at some point along the line, but you continued to do all the wet chemistry behind it, and so. How has all that changed uh, throughout your tenure? Yeah. So I think um, uh, you have to go back and actually look at the, the whole history of alfalfa production to realize that early on, the emphasis of alfalfa was trying to get it to persist and its yield, and its yield. Um, there was a forage extension agronomist here uh, who became a vice president of the university, Bill Yug, who did some great things. He had his own radio program, too, by the way, um, uh, on forage, making decisions about forage harvest and harvest. And, and he really started talking about the yield quality balance. You know, you get more yield of alfalfa and most grasses if you let it get more mature, but you lose quality. And he was saying, okay, if you cut here, you get this, you're going to make that decision. Um, Neil Martin then, uh, forage extension agronomist, um, he really promoted forage quality. He had an NIR van that he went around the farms and did testing of forages on farms to promote the emphasis on quality. And actually another former colleague of mine here, um, Gord Martin, who worked at the USDA ARS, he did pioneering work, pioneering work on NIR in terms of the laboratory analysis. And so I came in here then, and there was some background on forage quality or some emphasis on it, and it's become more and more important. In some ways, it's equally as important as yield, uh, as yield for growers because those nutrients, whether it's um, a protein, whether it's digestible energy, are very, very critical in terms of ration balancing. And if they're not supplied by the alfalfa, then you have to, you know, buy another source or use even soybeans. So for it. So you were, you were collaborating um, across campus here with the animal science and some of those folks as well in, in terms of helping with that data. Is that correct? Yeah. So I worked with, um, um, Jim Lynn, he was a dairy uh, extension specialist. Um, There was Dick Goodrich, he was an animal scientist. So there's been that kind of collaboration occurring over time. So that provided you you know more information, and obviously you know besides what was done in the wet lab, you know chemistry, but there actually are there are trials to help validate. Yeah, I think that the um, the greatest benefit from working with animal science has been that technology transfer of the knowledge because they deal with actually, okay, here's the animal. What does this data need? I remember once I was at a meeting talking about silage quality and Jim Lynn said, I don't know what this really means. (laughs) It was a great point because I was talking about ADF and NDF and NDF digestibility. And, you know, at that time, rations bounced on protein, based on TDN. And I hadn't made that conversion or thought process. I was ranking hybrids. He was looking at feeding the animals. And, and I know Neil worked a lot with Jim Lynn and the, and the extension uh, educators in uh, animal science. 
So that really, I mean, I think that's a good segue to how, um, you know, the, the challenges that you meet with an evolving farmer uh, demographic and the types of farmers you deal with. So clearly f- the type of farmers, especially from a dairy perspective, there's been big change over your time here. And, and the types of information that they are asking certainly depends on that scale and size and sophistication of those operations. So has that been a challenge for you to deal with, you know, those not only to change over time, but maybe even the, the distribution of the demographics of those farmers that are asking questions, right? So you've got some thousand head herds and you have some 10 head herds. And so those, those farmers are probably asking different questions of you. Is that right? Yeah. Um, very interesting point. Uh, maybe Dave is aware of this, but Dave, we, we used to have these field days when I first came at the Research and Outreach Center. And I remember down at Wasika and at Lamberton, there would be contests between Dick Anderson and Wally Nelson uh, about who had the most people, no, cars and, and farmers who showed up. And it seemed like there would be 500 to 1,000 farmers show up at each one of those field days because we were a source of unbiased information. And they... People really cared about this, and the farm size was small. Now, I think the average size now, what is it, about 350 acres? And I don't know what it was then, but we know what we do know, and it's for soybeans, corn, and dairy, is that that top, what is it, 5 or 1% of the producers are producing 95% of the product. So there, there's something called the disappearing middle, and we've lost a lot of our mid-sized farms, and there are a lot of very small farms. So you're absolutely right. Who are we generating data for now? Do those really big farmers listen to this podcast or use our information, or is their consultant using it? Likely the case. Maybe the surviving mid and small farms are the ones that are using our information the most. I think uh, we're going to get into that more on the next time, pardon me, but when we talk about teaching is where do our students and our graduate students end up going to and and working for these, you know, industry or acting as a consultant. So, you know, we may not have the direct effect, but it's more the multiplier indirect based upon whether they're coming from the University of Minnesota or other land-grant universities, but working for some of the major um, um, developing, you know, companies and so forth and breeding. And they, they do that out in the Pacific Northwest as well. So, yeah, yeah do we have influence? Um, I think we still do, but in more of an indirect route, you know, via the people that come out of these institutions and, and, uh, and train. I wanted to get back and talk a little bit about what's more hap- more recently, and maybe we can go from um, Neil Martin, and Neil moved on to uh, Madison. Dairy Forage Research Center, yes. Yeah. Right, and we had a gap, and then so um, you're kind of involved in that, in that position or chair here presently as we go through a lot of transitions. Yeah, um, yeah, and I've, I've got to talk about transitions. I've got to mention something. Um, about 10 years ago, maybe a little longer, I started getting involved in, in with Crescona Martins. And 
on equine research. And so it turns out there's more horses here in Minnesota than there are dairy cows. They're just about the same. And the horse industry uh, has uh, a lot of owners, uh, you know, small owners, some are bigger, but who are really interested in forages and pastures. So I did quite a bit of work with with, uh, Crescona on looking at alternative species for for horse grazing. Um, You know, we even grazed some alfalfa with horses. And for those of you who have horses, alfalfa does not kill horses, okay? You may get a lot of protein bypass in the in the urine, but it won't kill them. So um, <laughs> just thought I'd throw that little bit of education tidbit in there. Good to know. But, but it was great working with Crescona because Crescona has a great extension program as well, and a lot of that information has been useful, transferred out to 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 growers or to, to horse owners. I know you did a lot of work here on campus. We should mention right. Crescona's over in the department. She's involved in extension, but uh, in equine and animal science. Yeah. Yeah. So we did the pasture work. We also did work related to forage quality for horses. A lot of those different topics that, um, yeah, you can kind of take for granted if you've been in the forage business. But if you're a new horse owner, you may want that information or need it. So, and I think Krishona's done a great job assembling that information. So that was a major shift for me. I was working with horses and I got to know a number of horses too. And even though I don't like riding them, I'm afraid. You're too high. You know, you're too high off the ground. And as you get older, you realize the ground gets harder. Well, I, I actually want to come back. Dave worked really hard to steer us away from this question about who is our clientele and, and uh, us working at a land-grant institution. But this is, the, this is one of the things that I think that Craig Schaefer brings to so much to the table is that he's one of these really thoughtful guys that really looks at uh, the questions of who is he serving and, and what, what is his primary role as a university professor. I think a lot of faculty get in these little niches or they, they start working on these really nice academic questions that are important uh, to them um, and maybe can publish a lot of papers on. But Craig is one of these guys that is always looking for service to the people of Minnesota. And I I think his question earlier was really an important one. Is he, is he serving, serving Minnesota by the number of acres or the number of cows or the number of farmers? And the fact that um, he uh, is willing to work broadly and, and shift species uh, late in his career, later in his career, I think is, is really important. So I just wanted to get that out that, to say thank you, Craig, because I think that's that's one of my um, never-ending challenges is what, what is our role here at the university and, and how do we best serve the public? And uh, if we're really a land-grant institution, how do we really continue to, to do whatever that mission is? So I don't know if you have any other thoughts. I kind of made a big soapbox out of it, but hopefully you have some thoughts. Well, I, I think that you can also follow up on this comment, Seth. Um, so when I first came here... Um, Herb Johnson, our department head, was a no-nonsense guy, former Navy captain or Army captain or whatever, and um, kind of authoritarian (laughs) kind of person. Um, He told me, he said, look, we're going to give you money to operate with. We're going to give you a technician, graduate students, and there was an operating budget, um, which I suppose in today's money would have been millions of dollars. No, I joke. It was a lot less than that. 
Uh, and he said, we don't want you spending a lot of time going out chasing grants, worried about grants and bringing money in. All right. Well, over time, that money, graduate students, technicians, support money, all went away. And I think, Seth, you've seen that. Dave, you've seen that too. So we have had to spend a tremendous amount of time and energy going after funds to support our mission. And it's very challenging because many times money will be available in areas that don't fit your mission, but you need it to operate so your research may deviate somewhat from your your goals. Fortunately, in in forages, uh, there have been opportunities from funding agencies like SARE. There's also some alfalfa support money that do still fit my program. And I've been able to utilize that to do the things that I think are beneficial for producers. But, you know, one of the challenges we all face, and they'll face it here, you mentioned the people who get very myopic in their research, Seth, is, is about the money. You know, where can I get the money to do this or this? And a lot of the programs, federal programs, um, are, um, which, you know, provide indirect cost recovery, are in specific, very specific areas. And um, they don't necessarily uh, emphasize free thinking. They're usually in a specific area that, you know, someone feels you should work on. I, I need to get another plug in for the, the, um, the Craig Schaefer fan club here. I would say that um, I've, I'm a kind of perennial member of our um, uh, promotion and tenure committee here at the university in the, in the department. And so I get to look at everybody's file every year, but I would say that Craig Schaefer has the most high quality publications of nearly anybody in the faculty. And if you, if you made the denominator, the funds coming in for that program, he would definitely be um, the, the winner in terms of efficiency of high quality publications per dollar. So um, not only does he do really good research, but he's able to find uh, the, uh, the collaborators, uh, high quality people that want to work with him and that he wants to work with. And so, um, you know, I think the, some of the forage publications have gone a little bit on, you know, under the radar. And I think it's just, you know, based on, on uh, you know, on the nature of forages. But um, there's really, Craig's really done a fantastic uh, job and we're going to talk about some of the graduate education next week as well that'll go along with this but um, really a lot of great publications so thank you Craig well you're very kind Seth but here all along I thought you were the one giving me those bad evaluations no I was <laughs> I was the good one on there I, I'm the positive guy well, you I know just... there are as you mentioned there are a lot of great people around here to interact with and I always like being part of a team. And I've had some really good graduate students and some postdocs to work with, too, who've really helped me out um, and uh, a lot of the things I've done. So I've been very blessed in that way. Yeah, but you're not uh, – I, I just have to say back to that comment, Craig, is that um, good professors recruit good students. I, I think a, a lot of humble professors always want to claim that it's all based on their – their students and postdocs at these, the, they happen to have these great people walk in their doors, but, but uh, great, great faculty recruit great students. So I, th I think you can't get, get out of it completely on, on that. So I, I just wanted to put a plug in for the other side here and that's um, <clears throat> part of your, your position. That's the extension side. And I know that um, one of the 
facets of your personality and your interest is your willingness to uh, educate and take time to answer questions and get this multiplier uh, aspect going with extension people, uh, not just you know locally here, but across the state of Minnesota. But you know, over the years, and I th- I think even more recently, so um, as you're in this transcending position here, but I think that has really helped uh, a lot of folks in, in in terms of that. And you're not just you know get to the department and that's my world, but keeping in mind that there are there these other folks out there that you know are either teaching or interacting or going to be future in, in terms of that. So we appreciate uh, your interest in that and knowing what extension can bring to the table uh, in terms of knowledge and forage and, and certainly uh, the mechanisms to get the word out. You know, they're changing and, and are continuing to change, uh, but it, it still takes helping to build that knowledge base. And so we appreciate that uh, uh, with the extension educators. Well, again, thank you guys. You're very kind. You can save this to, for my memorial service or retirement dinner or whatever happens. So, <laughs> Speaking of that, uh, Seth, how are we doing on our time here today? And we, we certainly have a lot of things that we want to get to with, with, with Craig, but I think some of those are going to be in our, our next episode. Is that yeah, correct? Yeah, I think, I think we should save a little bit for uh, next week. We'd, we'd like to have Craig back, and we'll have a second uh, recording session, and we'll have a second podcast that's mostly focused on uh, teaching. But... Uh, we want to hear how that's changed over the time and how students have changed. And we'll definitely talk about the graduate students and postdocs that he's advised at, at that time as well. But I, I think we should hold, hold off until next week. There's too, much, there's too much for one session here with Craig. And we, we may even share a little bit of that time and talk about our current situation and, and crop. And, and if you can make it rain in the next week, that would be really good, Craig. <laughs> <laughs> well... I can't do that. You know, um, I'm just reflecting back on your kind comments. And, uh, you know, I think for a lot of us, it kind of grows goes back to our upbringing. And I had parents who, you know, who went through, survived the Depression, and had this tremendous work ethic. And they valued work. And, of course, at the time, we didn't have a lot of of, shall we say, media available. It was like, well, you had to read. They valued education or you worked. And there was time for play, but not too much. Um, So I think that all of us at some point look back and look at our parents and say, and thank them. Even though at the time, I kind (laughs) of, I thought they were, (laughs) well, they, well, I'll just say that. I, I don't know. I thought they were kind of old-fashioned. <laughs> and, you know, why didn't we have a television? <laughs> so, but, you know, it, uh, I've, I've really tried to work hard here and do the best job I can. Uh, and, again, I've had some really good people to work with. So, All right. Well, thank you very much. We appreciate you taking, again, the time to come in here today um, to the um, Borlaug Hall and spend some time with here on the uh, St. Paul campus and Department of Agronomy. Uh, uh, with that. Uh, Seth, any last words? Otherwise, uh, we want to thank um, Craig again and yourself. And this concludes the, this episode. Uh, I should say part one. Part one, yes. Part, part two, more to come uh, with, uh, with, with Dr. Craig Schaefer uh, in the next installment and episode. And we appreciate 
you folks listening today to the University of Minnesota podcast, University of Minnesota Extension CropCast. See you next time. Thank you.